Well, today we're going to uh, do a message called Rediscovering and Restoring His Pattern. This is a little bit of an improvement over a message that some of you heard about five years ago. And I partly am doing this because uh, at this current time, uh, we have about 10 individuals uh, in regular individual Bible studies uh, that are designed to take them through what's called the first five steps of entering Christ's kingdom. And uh, I'm working with two ladies and a couple men to increase the number of people that we have that know how to do that and uh, to walk someone through what we call the EPDC. If you picture a clock uh, at 12 o'clock, E stands for evangelism, which is the proclamation of the kingdom or the re restoration of a more biblical gospel. Uh, P, three o'clock stands for pastoral, which is really individual shepherding that, that Christ's model was that everyone should have a, a shepherd who's qualified to take them as far as they're willing to go in Christ. And um, uh, the, the six o'clock stands for discipleship, which means training specifically to multiply the life of Christ in others. In other words, you're, that you're equipped to lead people to Christ, to bring them into the baptism in the spirit, to cast out their demons, to, to uh, train them in everything they would need to be trained in to do it for others, and, the nine, and therefore the nine o'clock is C, continuum. When you can walk other people through that, then you've become a biblical disciple. And so that's kind of what we're after here in Grace Christian Fellowship is uh, one, of the, one of our goals is to, would be to multiply people who can walk someone all the way through to a mature disciple of Christ. And um, with that in mind, I, I want to explain that we were doing and will get back to doing a series called The Kingdom of God. It got interrupted for several weeks because we talked about a season of fasting. And I kind of needed this outline for for uh, right state, so I decided as long as we are already interrupted, and I'm probably going to actually take us back to chapter two of the Kingdom of God series anyway, and re redo that one when we when we re pick it up and try to pick a time coming up here in the next couple of weeks where we can press through and not be interrupted. So anyhow, with that in mind, let's look at a couple introductory scriptures in Acts three nineteen through twenty one. Uh, with do yourself a favor and read the context sometime to heal on the way to the hour of prayer and, and at the beginning of the chapter peter and john heal a lame man and uh so forth and uh they get to present the kingdom gospel to a crowd and in the middle of it uh peter says therefore as a result of what i've said so take time to read it repent and return uh repentance is not just turning away from individual sins and that's kind of thing, but it's actually a turning the core and center of your being toward the love of God that would take you to the obedience of God. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. You can actually measure how much you love God by how much you're conforming your life to what he wants you to do. And uh, the great thing about grace is that when it doesn't measure up, and if you have any kind of honesty at all, you'll see that it doesn't. And by God's grace, you can, you'll can you see the gap is bigger than you think over time. And then you just cry out to God and say, I can't, I can't even want to go there. Take me there. <laughs> That's grace. 
you, you know, I, I couldn't want to even be like you or, or do your will. Uh, there's nothing in me that doesn't want to do my will, that doesn't want to push you out of my life, except by the new creation that you put in me when I received Jesus Christ, cause that new creation to grow and become strong and to slay the old man in my life. So, uh, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Wish I could preach on that, but the manifest presence of God is one of the most missing elements of the church today. Just study the glory of God falling in the Old Testament in Exodus 40, in uh, Solomon's temple around 1 Kings 8, or, and that kind of thing, and compare that to what we are experiencing today. And understand that Hebrews tells us we're supposed to have a better covenant. And that will s cause you to start searching for what's wrong with what, and, and it'll take you to understand the enlightenment and layers of unbelief on our culture. And it'll take you to understand Phariseeism and, and how that's legalism and different wrong paradigms are choking our life and so forth. But if you, if you do that, um, the Lord will help us uh, understand uh things out of the presence of God. Moses was shown a pattern, as we're going to talk about today, on the mount. Uh, and then it talks about that he may say in Jesus to Christ, and here's what I want you to think about, whom heaven must retain or receive, uh, some translations say, until, that's a time word, until the period of the restoration of all things. Now, I believe the period of the restoration of all things began at Pentecost and continues through to today. And I believe that God... Uh, in, it makes it clear all through Scripture that he can increase the, the, the advance of the kingdom and the outpouring of his spirit and so forth uh, at, at, at key times when he wants to. But it's very clear that there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. That's a, uh, a verse out of Isaiah chapter 9 that we read about Christ in the first advent of Christ. When we're, when we're celebrating Advent, we understand that when light dawned uh, at the birth of, of our Savior, that light would have no end to its increase. If you think that, the, you know, if you've embraced the modern idea that it's going to get darker and darker and darker, just consider this. It's actually not. That, that's it, despite the fact that we've been actually hoping for that, expecting that, and working toward that for over a hundred years. In most of the world, there's still an outpouring of His Spirit and great in gatherings, and in uh, the in the church is expanding. It's only in in uh, Western Europe and America that it that it's declining. But the first Christmas, there were th you know, the first Easter. I meant to say. There were 30 cowering Christians in an upper room or so, maybe maybe a few more. But by the second one, there were th more than 5,000. And each one since then has seen a greater number of Christians to where uh, just in the last 10 or 15 years, Christianity uh, became the number one most populous religion in the world. Now, I understand that not all the forms of Christianity are very biblical or what have you, but still, that's, that's a direction. Uh, God intends the restoration of all things. If the, the message of the whole Bible that we'll be learning in this Kingdom of God series is that God's purpose is to restore everything that was damaged by the fall 
And there will be some very significant measures of that happening prior to the return of Christ. Now, that's very different than the popular mindset, but it is the biblical mindset if you take the time to study it more thoroughly. And we really need to trust in his word more than ours. So Isaiah 58 says, uh, one of, you know, in the 10 promises from fasting, for fasting with the right motives, number 10, my favorite, is those from among you. And it actually, some of the translations uh, bring this out, but it, it, in the Hebrew it implies your spiritual and physical uh, sons and daughters. It's those from among you in the sense of those that you're passing the torch on to will rebuild the ancient ruins and you'll raise up the age-old foundation You'll be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets in which to dwell. Isn't that awesome? So uh, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Joel are good places to get started if you're not familiar with the, the theme that God wants to restore his people to the fullness of, what, of his provision. He wants to restore his temple, which in the New Testament, of course, is the church. Uh, he wants his to fill the temple with his glory in such a way that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And those are all things that God is doing prior to the second coming of Christ in, in the scriptures. So that's a kind of exciting thing to be working for. It's a lot better than than running from the battle and yelling, "Anyam, it's a twister. God help us, or whatever." Will there be faith in the earth when the Son of Man comes back, and things like that? Uh, I'd rather work for uh, for that vision, frankly. Okay, so I want to start by just talking about what I've kind of been touching on already, restoring biblical perspective. And I'm going to be brief on this. I, I really could, no, Roman numeral one could be the whole message, and I'm going to limit myself to uh, about 10 minutes on this. Uh, so the the idea is simply this, what God is going to raise up, God is going to raise up communities of Christians. It's going to be an uphill battle at first, but there's a thing called spiritual momentum, and people will get breakthroughs where Christ is really living among the people as Lord, and they're living as in a lifestyle of accountability and mutual service and commitment to, to others under his word, empowered by the fullness of his spirit as a light to the world around them, so we can say, hey, this is what it's supposed to be like. See, the world will always discount one or two or three Christians or maybe a zealous Christian family, but they can't, re- they can't argue with a body of Christians that the glory of God dwells in because God is pleased with the fullness of their lifestyle. And so, um, you know, about... Uh, you know, a little bit after the Civil War and, and it, uh, from the 1870s to the 1890s, the, the idea that the church is it's, the world is going to get darker and darker. The church should kind of begin to protect itself. Uh, and we need to build our separate Bible colleges and keep away from this and this. And, and this kind of a kind of a defeated uh, what they call pessimillennial, uh, the official name for it was dispensational premillennialism. That idea of that 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 Satan's going to win and the the world kingdom is going to win and and Christ is going to finally come back when it gets really sick and dark. That kind of uh, negative eschatology was birthed in the 1800s. It it from 1870 to 1890 it grew 
And by the 1890s, it, it became the majority opinion. By the 1920s, it was almost all of evangelicalism. Today, 95% of Bible-believing Christians believe dispensational premillennialism, which was not ever taught by any Christians up until after the 1830s. So with that, the church began to embrace an idea that we should get people to pray the sinner's prayer so that we can send them to heaven, but we shouldn't think about re conquering the culture. We shouldn't think about overcoming Darwinism and higher criticism and amorality and, and so forth. We shouldn't build an alternate kingdom that is a, con that is a bright light against the contrast of that dark background. We can't win kind of idea. Well, now when that happened, the church began to withdraw from society into a thing called pietism, that where our Christianity is mostly something we keep to ourselves. We don't really put it on people. We do it behind our church walls and in our private devotions, but we, we, don't, have, we don't strategize together to take over. Now, Jesus had a whole different kind of takeover than how the world thinks about it. He didn't want to do it militarily, nor uh, from a top down uh, dominate them. He wanted to do it from a servant up, from a bottom up, serve them, love them, win them by the kingdom of, of Christ, which is so contrary to how the kingdom of, of this world would take dominion. Be sure whenever you start thinking about a, a dominion view of the, of, the, of the scriptures, which is a proper view, that you understand that that can only happen on the other side of his cross. The kingdom and cross are inextricably intertwined in the Gospels. But nevertheless, what we have to do is we have to call to the church and we have to say, turn around. See, and I've said this a million times, but we you know have new people, so... I'll, I'll say it again. If in the Old Testament, people are always surprised when they read, say, about uh, somebody mentioned Friday night, the sin of Achan. It's uh, Joshua chapter 7, I think. And, uh, you know, Achan covets things that were meant to be on, uh, given to the band, which meant devoted to the Lord, which actually meant devoted to destruction because God comes in judgment and mercy depending on what side of the sword you get on as it's coming down. Uh, make sure you dive for the right side. That's why the Bible says, we who have fled for refuge, uh, for, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the gospel of Christ. We've, we are appealing to God for salvation, for mercy. We, we're saying, King Jesus, we want to be on your team. <laughs> make, I know we're not worthy. I know that we have so many characteristics of the other team. Come and save us and make us like unto your team. Uh, that's the gospel. So uh, what, what happens is whenever a, a battle is joined, the first one to lose their faith, the first one to lose their confidence, the first one to fear instead of believe, the first one to have cowardice over courage begins to run from the battle. Once your back is turned to the battle, the other side has a mop-up operation. And that's what we've been experiencing in Western Christianity in the last 120 years or so. So our, the first thing I want to talk about today is just restoring a perspective of saying, hey, Christ is victor, Christ is Lord. He is the king of those who would be king in it. He's the Lord of those who would be lording it over others. He, his victory was assured already. 
in his sinless life, he, he kept stomping on the kingdom of darkness at his birth, at his outpouring of the Holy Spirit on him at John's baptism, at his temptation in the wilderness, at his proclamation of the kingdom, as he made disciples, he, uh, as he sent the disciples out in Luke 10, he kept stomping on his enemies until his final triumph in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, coronation, and his outpouring of his spirit onto his disciples to say, continue the ministry I started and make it look just like me. I'm the pattern. That's what he taught in John 14, 15, and 16 about who the Holy Spirit is and, and what it should look like. With, now, here are some examples of this. With, you know, in other words, we've, all we really need to do is, is change our perspective because as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If we think we're headed for, for defeat, if we think the kingdom of darkness is, is so great, if we don't have a God who's sovereign, if we have something in our heart and mind less than the full attributes of God, we'll, we'll be defeated. But if we begin to recapture who he is and what his eternal predestined plan has been, we, we will begin to turn around, find our fellow soldiers, link up arms like a phalanx, uh, make covenant, and begin to become a juggernaut to break down the kingdoms of darkness. The church did it in many centuries, in many places. The most obvious is the first five centuries of the church in the Roman Empire. The church entered a culture with approximately 120 disciples, a lot less than we have today in the world, uh, no buildings, no uh, literature publication places, uh, no access to internet, no, no Christian radio, millions and millions of less resources than we have today. Into the very same kind of culture, the Roman Empire was the first postmodern culture. Its humanistic beliefs are so similar to ours that it's amazing. And the, the Roman Empire kept crumbling as the church kept building, and they swipe, wiped up the process. They cleaned up after the humanistic mess and began to move, move reading and civilization and so forth from there into all of Europe, into, the, into all the barbarians, the Goths and the Visigoths. They began to conquer them. Guys like Boniface in the 8th century walked into a, what's now Germany, uh, uh, but a, a pagan Visigothic tribe, and he chopped down their totem pole. And as they were about to spear him to death, he said, if your God is God, why does he need your help to defend him? And he, began, and he proclaimed the gospel to them, and they were converted to Christ on the spot. Where are those kind of guys? I'm sending you to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> you, be, you better make sure you have the faith and anointing of Boniface, and you'll be okay then. Um, just make sure you have that worked out ahead of time. But uh, <laughs> although God will give you the anointing you need in the situation uh, at times. So uh, at least be posturing toward believing that you're going to receive that. It, uh, so Acts 17, uh, these people who've turned the world upside down, it, this, is, this is 30 years after the resurrection. And already, this is just before the persecutions of Nero, by 31 to 34 years, because we don't know for sure if Christ died in 30 or 33 AD, 
But by 64 AD, the Roman emperor, who claimed to be the son of God, who claimed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that was what the New Testament was addressing, that Caesar really wasn't this, Jesus really was this. This guy was so threatened by the Christians that the, that the Roman Empire launched a massive persecution against them that lasted from 64 AD to 313 AD to when Constantine finally said, let's stop this madness. We've been killing for 250 years all the best citizens of our empire. And they're the only good that's left here. Let's welcome these people. And he wrote a thing called the Edict of Toleration, sometimes called the Edict of Constantine, the Edict of Milan. All of it means the same thing, saying Christianity is no longer going to be prosecuted or persecuted. Uh, It's going to be welcomed. We are facing exactly the same kind of world and exactly the same kind of worldview. The problem is, as the disciples cried out to Jesus and said, Lord, increase our faith, he didn't say, okay, I'm going to bring in truckloads of faith and pour it on you. No, he said, I'm going to, what you need is one seed, the grain of a mustard seed. It's not the quantity, it's the quality issue. It's, it's the reality of what our Christianity has become that's the problem. And we've got, to, we've got to open our eyes up to a much bigger view of God. Salt and light. Because, again, I'm going to just hit this quickly. We all know salt stops corruption. People in darkness look for the light switch. Nobody is coming to us and saying, teach us how to do money and banking. Teach us how to do business. Teach us how to do marriage. Teach us how to raise our kids. Because seven out of 10 of our kids are rejecting the faith when they become adults. Because over half of our marriages are ending up in divorce. No one is coming and saying, and we have the same amount of credit card debt and the other kinds of debt that the worldly people have. We're not the head instead of the tail. We're not the lender instead of the borrower. I would encourage all of you to have a lending business. It's very biblical. Okay, so gates. Jesus said, you know, you're Peter, a little rock. I'm this big foundational rock. And upon this foundational rock of the revelation of Christ, I'm going to build my church. That's a proper interpretation of, the, of what the Greek means. Uh, as you get a real revelation of Jesus Christ, you get founded on the real rock, which is him. And he's not called you to become, have your personal savior in some isolated context. And it's interesting that that's the most common phrase in Christianity today. Personal Savior doesn't appear in the Bible at all, not once. Paul calls Jesus his Lord one time, my Lord one time. He calls Jesus our Lord together 63 times. We have exactly the opposite ratio. And um, basically what, what Jesus is saying is you're supposed to be a city on a hill. You're supposed to be able to say, hey, your life is really in trouble. Can't you see how messed up your marriage is and your finances? And come and we'll, and, and we'll teach you how to, to know God. And you'll be restored to the purposes for which you were made in the first place. 
break away from any soul ties and bondages that, that are less than committed to the fullness of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and make your family those who are fully committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you shall begin to experience the abundant life that I came to give you. Until then, you'll be in and out of darkness and light and making some progress and losing some progress and, and you'll just always be in this sort of spiritual never-never land which is where, unfortunately, almost all Christianity is living today. Salt stops corruption around it. You can totally tell if the Christianity is that real grain of mustard seed by whether or not the cultural morals around the church are getting better or worse. Are we killing babies and, and respecting life? You know, are we serving the poor? Do we have? Do we just get rid of our, you know, the poor by passing government laws? And here, here, steal some of my paycheck, and and because I really don't want to get involved. I, I don't really want to tutor some kid that's nose is running and has bed bugs and and uh, it has always has a cold every other week and. And, and doesn't their parents don't have never taught him how to do his laundry? Yeah, become their mentor. I was really excited. I talked to a young man to, this week that was all excited because he's he's meant through Wiz Kids program. He's mentoring this young boy, and he is the closest to Christ that young boy will ever get. He is Christ, and to the degree that we represent Christ, to that degree we're able to be effective in what we're doing. Now, the last point one E there, and then I've got to move on. I'm 10 minutes behind schedule already. The, in, let, let me just plead to us. You know, I try as much as possible to be careful that we don't sound like we're arrogant or whatever. But it's not humility to say we don't know what we know and we haven't become who we've become. Moses said, now the man Moses was the meekest man in the, all, in the, the whole earth. Humility is to understand that it's totally by the grace of God. We're the least likely candidates. That's why God chose us. He likes to take the most messed up ones. It's the poor of this world and the downtrodden that he makes the demonstration of his glory. You're a Christian today because you were probably the worst possible candidate to become a Christian <laughs> that God could find in your neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, wow, if I can save that one, that really shows people some stuff. Okay, that's really kind of how God does it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. That's... It, you know, so with that in mind, understand this. You can't possibly hope to encounter God for real and get beyond religiosity into any kind of reality if you don't hear many things that offend you, that hurt your feelings, that cause you to get pissed off, angry, self-righteous, that cause, if you are not hearing any of that stuff, you're in the wrong church. If the messages never make you mad, 
<laughs> you go somewhere where they're where Jesus made people mad enough that they had they finally said we we got to kill this guy. And by 30 years after his resurrection, the Jewish leaders had said had convinced the Roman Empire, see, we told you we had to kill these guys, and now the Roman Empire is going to join forces with us. That's exactly what the book of Revelation is talking about, uh, because in 64 AD, it was no longer the Judaizers that were trying to kill the church. They, they, had, they had convinced Nero and his forces to join the battle of trying to kill the church. If people are indifferent about who we are, then we have to really admit we don't have anything real. If people are like, oh, you go to this wonderful church, and wonderful. And they're basically going, oh, move on. Like, it's, your, your God and your Christianity is, is irrelevant. I might as well get as much wisdom from my sociology professor or my history professor or some humanistic lost person uh, and have an interesting discussion about uh, whether a tree falls in the woods. Can we hear our navels being contemplated, you know, as to, as to, as to be discipled by you guys? That's where the world is at because we've, that's because that's who we are. And we have to humble ourselves. We have to cry out and say, God, make us the real thing. Because they will find the light when we have the light in us. They will find the city when we become the city. They will have their corruption stopped when we have enough salt within us. And we're no longer good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot by men. Well, I can see I'm only going to, I'm glad I planned to do this two weeks. Let's talk about Roman numeral two, rediscovering the pattern. Now, I'm going to give us just a couple different approaches to this uh, issue. In First Chronicles 13, 1 through 10, uh, the Israelites, read the whole passage for yourself this week. Circle that, highlight it, something to re read this. Because what the Israelites do is the Philistines had captured the, the Philistines had captured the Ark of God uh, in the, you know, in the time of uh, Eli. And the, the, Philist, the Ark of God had been among the Philistines for too long. God's people did nothing about it for a generation. And finally, God was fed up enough that he started to act directly. So he first began to give the Philistines tumors. King James says hemorrhoids. I, I love that. They, and so they sent an offering of golden hemorrhoids back with the ark. But the Philistines were pagans. They didn't get out their Bible and say, how do we carry the manifest presence of God in precisely the right way? This is an awesome God. We can't carry his ark in some way different than he's called us to carry it. So they said, hey, let's make, we'll do it up. These Israelites, they had poles and stuff. We're going to get a new cart and some, our best oxen. And we're going to put the ark on the, on the cart and we're going to send it back to them. And the Philistines were, you know, the Israelites, when they saw it coming, they were like, wow, it's an improvement. It's like a Cadillac, a Lexus. They, they, it's got wheels. Why didn't we think of wheels? This, we got all the American marketing methods carrying the presence of God now. This is hip. 
So they said, let's bring the ark of God up to Jerusalem. And we'll go ahead and use this better idea of how to carry it. That's called the modern seeker-sensitive uh, megachurch movement. We're going to improve on how to do the church. And almost every denomination has their view of that. But none have said, let's see how God told us to carry his presence. And so they brought it in in the new Lexus cart with the four wheels, pneumatic tires and stuff. Just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, the oxen almost upset the cart. And this guy named Uzzah, he decided, I'll save God. A lot of that in the church today. And he saved God, reached out to save God. And that it was so presumptuous, God struck him dead. God help us. Just don't make me the example because I deserve it so many times. <laughs> we need that. That's what God did. To, and if you don't think that's the New Testament God, because we got this nice, effeminate, lovey-dovey God in the New Testament, and that mean old, masculine, sword-carrying, mean God that was in the Old Testament. Remember, he killed Ananias and Sapphira for a lot less hypocrisy than most of us exercise on a weekly basis. So be careful as we cry out, pour out your spirit on us. We also need to cry out, make us like unto you, so that as you pour out your spirit on us, none of us get killed. <laughs> um, I'm serious. I'm really surprised, frankly. I know more about me than you do, and you probably think I'm a little more godly than I am. Hopefully I'm more godly than, than I think, but I don't know. I'm just surprised I'm not dead yet, <laughs> really. And uh, so <laughs> he's a, James is surprised that I'm not dead yet, too. So uh, um, he, he must know more about you, me than you guys do. Uh, <laughs> you didn't carry, you know, you didn't carry it the first time the way the Lord prescribed to us. Now, notice, um, notice that... Uh, the uh, ESV says, according to the rule. King James says, according to the due order. New King James says, that according to the proper order. In other words, God had given specific instructions how to carry the ark, which is a type and foreshadowing of what his church is. That's you. You're the ark of the covenant. We, together, are the ark of the covenant. And we can't just be carried and carry the presence of God in any old American acceptable cultural way. That's why we're getting the results we're getting. It's not because the world is going to grow darker and darker, and there are verses that say that evil men will wax more evil. But that's not all the verses on the subject. So we have got, you know what, what the, they actually left the, the, left the ark at Obed-Edom's house after that happened because David was afraid to complete the journey. But then God started blessing Obed-Eben because that's what God's presence does among God's people when they're godly. And so David's like, wait a minute, this guy Obed-Edom's getting all these blessings. And I'm not getting them because I was afraid to complete the journey because I didn't want to get killed like Uzzah. And not. So maybe I should get back to searching the scriptures to figure out what went wrong. And that's exactly what they did if you read the whole context. And they, then they discovered, oh my goodness, 
the Levitical priests were supposed to carry it in poles in prescribed ways. We, we had a better idea, and God wasn't pleased with our better ways. God was pleased with the pattern he gave us. And we, what happens is, you know that most of God's people, like in this story, this is very important for us to hear. You really got to hear this. I mean, this should be something you think about for a few years. Don't lose this thought. Think about it. Study the whole Bible in light of this thought. Most of God's people are not following God's pattern, not because of their rebellion against God, but because of their ignorance of God's word. And what's uh, the, one of the, in the, one of the greatest ironies of history, the greatest movement that talks about being Bible-believing has caused the Bible to become divided up in ways that take all the guts out of it, that reduce it, that cause uh, us to miss the, the major messages. And so we don't see, it's not out of rebellion, it's out of ignorance. My people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Now, this is pretty harsh, but God said it, not me. Because you have forgotten knowledge, I will also forget your priesthood. If you're wondering why you don't see amazing answers to your prayers, it's because you don't take your studying seriously enough. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject your children. If you don't, can't figure out why we're losing the abortion battle, it's because, the, because you know, I, I watched that movie Luther for the 103rd time uh, Friday night after Friday night fellowship. And I, I, I can't help but weep at certain parts when I realize that Tyndale, Wycliffe, Huss, people died at, and were burned at the stake, hundreds, for their belief that you ought to have a Bible in your hands in your own language that you can read for yourself. And we spit on it like, I'm too busy with sociology to actually read it. I got to get a new car. I got to get my hair done. We have a thousand ways that we're like Martha, even serving the Lord in all our bidding, busyness, but we're not like Mary sitting at his feet reading his word. We dishonor him and we dishonor the men who died to give us this Bible. I almost never meet a Christian who you could really say, if you understood church history and Old Testament history, that you can really say knows their Bible. We Some people know their Bible when we all clutter up together and we compare ourselves and we go, oh, Greg knows his Bible. But let me tell you, I don't know my Bible in the, in the kind of way that many Christians have considered normal through the centuries. Make time for him. Love him with all your mind. Well, the pattern of the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, God is speaking to Moses. After he gives him the law and all this kind of stuff, he takes Moses. He took Moses, remember, twice up on the mountain where he fasted, got the tablets of the covenant, all that. 
receive the word that you shall be a kingdom of priests to me, a holy nation, the same things that he tells Peter to tell the church in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9, etc. And uh, then he tells Moses, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern. Construct a sanctuary for me. You know, I know that some, some of the older traditions of our faith have too much externalism and not enough internal. But I loved one certain parts of my Catholic upbringing, one of which was you were supposed to kneel and humble yourself before you came into the sanctuary. Now, I understand that most of the people who do that don't understand that you're the sanctuary. So they're not really bowing in their heart and they're not really worshiping in their being and they're not really conforming their life to Christ. Nevertheless, the idea that we should fear the presence of God and get on our knees and humble ourselves and not just, oh, I'm going to church today. I think I'll get up at 825 to be there at 830. Uh, and I'll go ahead and go out partying the night before and whatever. No, you know, we should humble our hearts and prepare anytime five or six of us are going to get together to pray let alone the Lord's day and so forth. We should, we should genuflect. We should cross ourselves, but not just externally. He says, you're going to make me a sanctuary. It was a foreshadowing of all God's purposes for all time. All God's purposes for all time are in us corporately sitting together. He doesn't have any plan B except for you guys, us guys, we guys, or whatever. And he says, the purpose of the sanctuary that you build is so I may dwell among you. We've got to ask God to take off our blinders. Excellent message, John. And John 9 and blind Bartimaeus and so forth. We need to say, have mercy on us, son of David, I'm blind. And help me see the things that would cause you to dwell among us. What are we chasing? Why are we willing to start over and build a new wineskin and preach all this radical stuff that scares people half to death so they don't want to come back? Because it's more about God than it is about them. We need to say, God, save us into the kind of people that can carry your glory. Believe me, when our worship becomes real worship, people will come in here and their outer man will go, they're lifting their hands. Oh, my God, they're singing in tongues. They're clapping. Oh, my God, NEM, get me out of here. Oh, mommy, I want to. But their inner person will say, wow, this is what I was created for. I belong here. These people and this kind of worship is my destiny. So much for watering it down so much that we can't possibly. Listen, you can't take all the offense out of the gospel or you can't produce any results anyway. So what we have here is we have this whole camp of thinking that has said, let's take all of the content out so much that we never offend anybody. And I constantly meet people that have been exposed to that kind of thinking for 5, 10, 15 years, and actually it's more hindered them from coming to God than helped them because they think God is, you know, 
Jesus, Kermit the Frog, you know, yeah, they're, they're pretty good. They have such a low view of, of what it means to carry the power of God that they're not expecting it to be awesome. You know, when we, in, we should be, have, when we encounter the presence of God, we should fall on our faces like Peter and say, Jesus, you, I think you got the wrong person here. Depart from me. I, I'm a sinful person. I don't belong in this group. And, and then Jesus lifts our eyes up to see him and says, I know you don't belong. That's why I chose you. I came to save you. So the pattern, I got to wind down here, and then next week I will talk a little bit about uh, 14 areas of thought that we need to look at that are just the most major areas. I can't get into any detail, but um, there is a there is an idea throughout all the Bible of a pattern. This is such an important idea that the rest of the book of Exodus, after 25, over and over it says, Moses made the curtains just as the Lord had shown him on the mountain. Moses made the, the brass rings exactly as the Lord had shown him. And over it says that over a hundred times that he followed the pattern. And then when they get done following the pattern, they decide to dedicate the temple and the glory of God fills it so much that the priests have to leave the temple because they can't handle the power. Uh, however, we have a better provision in the new covenant. But I'm hoping we'll at least get to that kind of glory that we're like, oh, we can't handle the power, then God will help us change us to handle the power. That's really what God's will for a church is, any church. Now, this is so important that Stephen repeats that in his speech to the Sanhedrin, which apparently didn't sell many copies among their their people <laughs> since they killed him. But uh, <laughs> I guess that wasn't like the message of the week. <laughs> Emily didn't put it on the podcast, but um, especially not on the Sanhedrin website. Um, you know, Hebrews thought, tells us, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern. Flip over the, the sanctuary. If you're not clear on this, read Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. But Moses' sanctuary David's and Solomon's temple, the rebuilt temple of Ezra and Nehemiah's time, the rebuilt temple of Herod's time is the fifth one, because I skipped from third to fifth, because go back to the fourth one is Ezekiel's vision of the temple that was never built. All of those are foreshadowings of the one great temple that God always had in mind, the church. And so we think we don't have to re-examine biblical leadership or how we're supposed to carry the gospel or any of these issues. You need to re-examine them all because we can't just carry the things of God any old way. That's the curse of modern Christianity. Christ himself says, I gave you an example that you should do as I do. That's point D on the back of your outline there. Peter says that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. The doctrine of suffering isn't even in most brands of Christianity today. God wants, I just want to let you know that God wants to conform you to the image of his death. If you think he's trying to kill you at times, he really is. That's a promise. 
He loves you so much, he wants to meet you on the other side of the cross for who you were always destined to be. Are you willing to take that journey with him? So uh, we must re-examine what we must restore. Uh, the reason the Holy Spirit was given, John 14, 26, he shall bring into your remembrance. Your whole life you should be studying. You start with the foundation of the Gospels and the book of Acts. You take the foundation of the Pentateuch and the, seven, the historical books, the, and, and you move from those foundations into the rest of Scripture to re-examine in order that we might rebuild according to the pattern. God, show us parts of the pattern that we're missing. This idea first occurred to me in 1974. In this fall, it'll be 40 years I've been studying that. 40 years saying, God, help us find a biblical pattern that's not the way we do church now, but it's the way you did church. In the because what are we after ultimately? We're after ultimately something that will be glorious to him, not necessarily comfortable to us.